Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We all know that right now, the higher education sector is facing an unprecedented range of external challenges. Funding conditions are uncertain, and competition for a shrinking demographic of 18-year-olds has created financial instability in some providers. Brexit International recruitment, pensions, debt and capital programmes are all live issues that providers across the UK have variable capacity to absorb. And all of this is taking place against a backdrop of a highly negative media and political narrative, especially in England. With regulatory and funding regimes across the four nations of the UK becoming increasingly differentiated, alongside new providers and an explicitly competitive ethos in the English system, the scope for HE providers to share identities or influencing agendas appears genuinely limited. But while in some ways it all feels worse than ever, perhaps in other ways we've all been here before. I'm Mark Leach, the editor-in-chief and founder of Wonky, and in this special podcast we'll reflect on the volatile political policy and public landscape we find ourselves in. We'll ask, why is it that when it comes to making and implementing education policy, we seem to have the same debates over and over again. But it feels like we're getting nowhere. Here, on the eve of the release of the Orga Review, we'll ask, will the long-awaited report finally help us avoid this education policy trap? It's too early to say. That's the famous but misquoted quip from Chinese Premier Zhu Enlai, in 1972, supposedly about the impact of the French Revolution. But it's come to encapsulate a fundamental truth about history. What is significant in the short term might be a footnote in the long run, and what is ignored today may have huge ramifications tomorrow. Take Brexit. It's dominated the past few years, few months, and probably the last few minutes, whenever you've chosen to listen. It has raised fundamental questions about our constitution, our executive, our parliament, our political parties, and our electoral system. But even so, it's still hard to say how the events of this year will rank against other seismic post-war moments, where public trust in our democratic institutions was tested to a limit. For all the millions of words on Brexit that have been published, we don't know if it'll be any more or less definitive than other turning points since the war. The breakup of the British Empire, the social revolution of the 60s, the breakup of the post-war economic consensus, and now fragmentation of a third way between left and right. All of these factors impacted on the UK's vote to leave the EU. We just don't yet understand how they all fit together. You wouldn't be able to work this out from the Brexit so proper we've been enduring on our screens every night. Who's up? Who's down? Who's winning? Who's losing? And who's in? Who's out? Politicians speak of their values, beliefs and ethos of wanting to make the world a better place. But the politics they pursue is reported to us as a psychodrama of leadership ambitions, of party tribalism and factional rivalries. 
none of this is new, of course. Politics has always married high ideals and low cunning. The choice is in your hands, but my recommendation is clear. I believe that Britain will be safer, stronger and better off in a reformed European Union. It's six years after David Cameron pledged that in-out referendum, and there is still no agreement on the problem that leaving the EU is the answer to. The forthcoming Tory leadership contest will be dominated by it, and it's crowded out discussion on anything else for almost all of those six years. Yet looking across public policy, these debates aren't even scratching the surface of the bigger issues that we all know are facing our country. We're still locked into the same old debates about the same old issues. Social care, NHS, tax, growth, jobs, poverty, industry, productivity, welfare, pensions, energy, devolution, police, criminal justice, discrimination, early years and schools. And we see this no more clearly than in tertiary education. This autumn is the centenary of the Ministry of Reconstruction's groundbreaking report on adult education, arguing that lifelong learning was vital to the nation's welfare and security. And it's 75 years since the Education Act promised the national system of technical schools, a radical change that has still never been seriously attempted. Though he's no good at exams, he has an aptitude for engineering. This will be encouraged by his teacher, who will have a real knowledge of his character and needs. She will keep a record of his progress and development, so that when the time comes for Billy to move on to his secondary school, his headmaster will be able to advise him and his parents on what type of training he should follow. Well, Mrs. Mason, judging by this report, there's only one sort of school for Billy. You mean a, a technical college? Yes. Just the sort of school for a boy of his type. And he'll get a first-class engineering education. We've had decades of reform, legislation and change. 50 secretaries of state, 28 acts of parliament and six departments have overseen further education since 1945. We're having the third major review of university funding in the last 20 years, quite aside from the dozens of consultations, green papers and white papers. And we've seen continual creation and dismantling of institutions and agencies to regulate, fund and manage the higher and further education sectors, complicated even more by devolution. Yet we are still no closer to creating a coherent post-18 system of professional, technical and academic education. We've still got a college and adult education system starved of investment, a university financial model under pressure, a flawed apprenticeships funding model, and a politically toxic tuition fees and loan system. And the odds are that the post-18 education and funding review process will fall well short of addressing it all. And with Theresa May now on her way out of Downing Street, it almost certainly means that the Prime Minister, Chancellor and Education Secretary who commissioned it will be gone by the time decisions get made, let alone implemented. Our goal is a funding system which provides value for money for graduates and taxpayers. I believe, as do most people, including students, that those who benefit directly from higher education should contribute directly towards the cost of it. That's only fair. Making university truly accessible to young people from every background is not made easier by a funding system which leaves students from the lowest income households bearing the highest levels of debt, with many graduates left questioning the return they get for their investment. We now have one of the most expensive systems of university tuition in the world. The review is also at the mercy of what's shaping up to be a brutal spending review and a completely unpredictable political environment. We have, in short, 
no idea if it would form the basis of major reform or be dead on arrival. So at Wonky, we wanted to step back and ask, why is it that we keep ending up back at the same starting grid of tertiary education, with the same arguments, diagnoses and prescriptions? Maybe the problem is with the policy process itself, where churn, reinvention and recycling seems ingrained, and the bar is set all too high to build real consensus. Perhaps the problem is in the higher education establishment, which to some appears to put its own interest over committing to a coherent post-18 system. The problem could be that modern government simply hasn't kept pace with the complexity of today's globalised economy, rapidly changing society, and enormous demographic and intergenerational change. We've drilled down to possible root causes which needed to be addressed if we're to escape this policy trap. Without actually saying sorry, she's saying um, this, is, this hasn't gone the way that it was expected. They thought there was going to be this fantastic marketplace of, of different courses for different prices, but it hasn't panned out that way. And so now they're kind of stuck and wondering what to do. And when you're hearing, for example, Jeremy Corbyn saying, you know, scrap the lot, and that's going down well with students who are terrified of the Politics and policy that. is about storytelling. And the best politicians and policymakers tell stories about where they've come from, where we and they are going. The art of political leadership is to adapt that story into a manifesto and a programme able to persuade, mobilise and galvanise. We live in an anti-politics age, but politics is at its best when it's at its boldest in putting the public good first. No mainstream political party is going to reverse same-sex marriage, abolish capital punishment or kill off equal workplace rights. Despite forces like the Brexit party surging around a single issue, after all, they've refused to publish a manifesto beyond Brexit. The idea that a party would propose to revoke legislation on, say, smoking bans, raising the school leaving age or the minimum wage, would be met with incredulity by the comfortable majority of people in Britain. The UK has always instinctively shied away from overarching ideologies that drive policy. Instead, the belief that each generation should do better than the last is the closest there is to a unifying British dream. Because all that should ever drive us is the duty we have to Britain and the historic mission of this party, this Conservative Party, to renew the British dream in each new generation. That dream that says each generation should do better than the one before it, each era should be better than the last. The dream that for decades has inspired people from around the world to come to Britain, to make their home in Britain, to build their lives in Britain. It is the social contract articulated by every government in opposition since 1945. The political dividing line boils down to the extent the state intervenes to run the economy to deliver this. There is not necessarily one version of the truth. Politics has competing and often wholly convincing narratives based on the same evidence. So the crux of any discussion about public policy rests on what we mean by it. Who makes it and who owns it? Is policy the means to an end, or is it the end in itself? Is policy made by those we elect, or those who apply that policy? And is policy best judged by the intended outcome, or the actual outcome? This is not as arcane as it sounds. The soap opera storyline of politics demonstrates a wider mismatch between our expectations of ministerial control in Westminster and the limits of actual ministerial powers. We elect politicians to make decisions and choices on our behalf. Policies are then allocated to specific departments to be responsible and accountable. 
and there is not a linear process where fixed policy outcomes are linked to fixed decisions at fixed times by fixed people. Policy making is messy, chaotic and complicated, shaped by factors beyond policymakers' control. Policymakers never have enough information to make decisions with absolute certainty. And all this means is most policy change is minor, and major policy change is rare. And when it happens, it takes place over decades, or needs a shock to kickstart it. Would the Attlee government have had the window of opportunity to build the welfare state without the war? Social scientists have long tried to disaggregate all this to improve the quality of policymaking. But in the last decade, there has been a trend to adapt complexity theory, originally a strand of the natural sciences, to explain it. The argument goes that complex systems behave in a way that is unstable and unpredictable. Small actions can have big outcomes, and big actions can have small outcomes. Take the British dream of social mobility. There is a broad consensus that social mobility grew quickly in the UK in the 1950s and 1960s thanks to the expansion in quality white-collar jobs, more women in the workforce, and access to universal healthcare. But in terms of higher education policy today, these decades look like the dark ages, with low progression to tertiary education and universities closed off to all but an elite. Even if we accepted it as a unifying goal, the truth is we are still debating what social mobility is, let alone the right combination of public policies to drive it. Is it absolute or relative? Is it about mobility across generations between parents, children and grandchildren? Or is it about equality of opportunity within generations for individuals and their families during their own lifetime? So while we can articulate the broad problem, we can't pinpoint how to address it with any degree of certainty. Sure, there's a gradual accumulation of facts, logic and analysis over time about a given issue, but it will never be complete. Instead, policy draws on more ingrained, ephemeral behaviours, instincts, beliefs, prejudices, emotions and habits. It means the need to be seen to do something. Politicians tend to believe they're only one headline away from electoral success. Lobbyists, campaigners, trade unions, mission groups and think tanks feed off this. There are no prizes in arguing furiously for the status quo. The Brexit impasse may not be a blip. Perhaps it shows that in an ever more complex and volatile political environment, policy is about reaching the next stage and working out where to go. Vote Leave's campaign hinged on taking back control. Maybe the lesson from complexity theory is we never had that much control to take back to begin with. Complexity theory might go some way to explaining the decades-long failure to create a coherent post-18 education system. After all, it's not for want of trying. Politician after politician, decade after decade, we've had a pledge to break the binary divide between vocational and academic education. So let us remove one by one Britain's biggest educational and employment handicaps. As Alan Johnson proposes, give vocational quality qualifications parity of esteem with academic qualifications. Well, I think the important thing is that we've got to establish genuine parity of esteem. They all promise to turn the UK into the next Germany, to not waste talent. And yet for all the time and treasure spent on it, we keep ending up back at square one. Arguably, higher education has had an outstanding run compared to further education. Teaching and research 
has never been as well-funded. It's evolved into a massified international sector. It carries huge economic, social and cultural punch. Universities would have given their eye teeth for all this in the dark days of underinvestment in the 80s and 90s. Rachel Wolf is a former strategy advisor to David Cameron. I think there's no question that if you look over the last 15 to 20 years, higher education has done better than further education. And I think there are two primary reasons for that. Um, The first is that most politicians over the last couple of decades, whether on the Labour side, the Conservative side, or even when they were briefly powerful, the Liberal Democrat side, have an experience of going to universities and indeed to very selective universities. A staggering proportion of conservative ministers and prime ministers went to Oxford. If you look at the last three higher education ministers, um, they all went to Oxford. But that was also true uh, under the Blairite years. And because of that, they have an instinctive understanding, support and sympathy for higher education when they simply don't have any experience of further education. Not only did they not go, but in general, their children don't go. And I think that has unquestionably changed their instincts towards the sector. Um, The second reason, I think, is um, because there has been, actually until now, a real consensus in domestic policy uh, between... um, again, the kind of more Blairite, even Brownite Labour governments and the coalition and Conservative governments. Parties tend to amplify their differences and disagreements. But actually, in the broad sweep of domestic policy and certainly education policy, whether that's schools, looking at academies, for example, or higher education, actually, the two sides are broadly agreed. So a combination of that consensus and I think the instinctive sympathy towards higher education meant that higher education did relatively really, really well and that cuts to further education felt much more invisible to politicians and also to journalists. It's important to remember that most journalists also went to top universities, again, a remarkable number of them to Oxford. Um, uh, That bias means policymaking gets bogged down by separating out further and higher education when we're talking about the same generation of young people. It is tertiary education as a whole, not higher education alone, which matters most to society at large. This is then exacerbated by ministers in successive governments swinging between policy extremes in post-compulsory education. At one end of a spectrum, we have seen attempts to impose a more centrally planned system with targets, tight regulation and accountability. And at the other, we've seen a market-based agenda pursued with freedom and power devolved down to employers and learners. In theory, at least. Further education is much more exposed to ministers trying to design, configure and manage because colleges' independence or autonomy are not protected like universities. So it's no surprise that we've ended up with a complex mix of post-18 providers, funding systems, qualifications and accountability mechanisms, which every government tries to simplify and streamline, where churn begets more churn. But that means the onus has to be on education leaders to be bolder. No one starting with a blank sheet of paper would invent a post-18 system quite like ours. It has evolved over decades, rather than by design. It's true that scores of universities and colleges do brilliant work together. But often, these successes are in spite of, not because of, national policy. The tough spending review process risks forcing different parts of the education system into bidding wars 
against other parts of the education system, with one sector being played off another. We've seen the instinctive reaction to the risk of a lower baseline tuition fee is to batten down the hatches and not make the case for long-term investment across sixth forms, colleges, adult services, as well as higher education. All this is fed by an endemic overambition in policymaking. The National Order Office wrote about the optimism bias that surrounds infrastructure projects in 2013. It says this was fueled by everything from a poor evidence base and no independent challenge to weak stakeholder engagement and project management. It summed up that the incentives to be over-optimistic are very strong and disincentives relatively weak. Junior ministers usually get more credit for signing off on projects or passing legislation than implementing policy. And even then, the constant turnover of ministers and civil servants means accountability is blurred if the shit does hit the fan. Even when failures are clearly attributable to ministers, many aren't held to account for their decisions. And without more fundamental change, this leads to repeated failures, which harm the public and undermine trust in institutions. A classic case of over-optimism was arguably opening up higher education to market forces, the core of the policy of the last nine years. Nick Hillman was a government special advisor on higher education during the coalition years. Uh, I, I don't think it was the main... I, I don't think injecting market forces into universities was the main reason why fees were tripled. I think it was um, a secondary reason. So I think the main reason was to save money. But for many of the people who were um, in charge at the time, they were quite relaxed about market forces being uh, um, imposed on universities. And of course, one consequence of tripling tuition fees, which came later, was removing the student number cap. And that uh, again, had lots of causes, but one of them, even more than the tripling of tuition fees, actually, was to make universities much more competitive against one another. So they were actually fighting for students in a way they hadn't had to do previously. So if anything, I think market forces were more associated with the removal of the student numbers cap than with the tripling of fees even though those two policies are actually related to one another. But have markets worked? Ministers might start off with the premise that higher education institutions are inherently protectionist, anti-competitive or monopolistic. But universities are uniquely bizarre, complex federal structures. A market cannot just be willed, legislated and regulated into existence. There is no single model of a university, let alone a coherent UK sector or system. There is, as the late great David Watson put it, a sort of mutually assured higher education enterprise which government and others would like to be more differentiated by purpose and especially by price. Ministers took an intellectual punt. It takes some leap of imagination to tell students to act as consumers paying for their tuition when it is 100% free at the point of use. No one can demand any cash back or withhold any payments then there are the unintended consequences. For some reason, policymakers failed to foresee that there would be an oversupply of courses that are inexpensive to teach. An inevitable increase in advertising spend during a demographic dip was beyond their control. Nobody saw a student mental health meltdown in the tea leaves and no one predicted the impact of expanding the boarding school model on towns and cities. 
exacerbating an already punishing housing crisis. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. It is no surprise then to see Labour opening up a new dividing line on marginalisation. Mr Speaker, this crisis is a direct result of the government's failing free market experiment. Isn't it time that they face the fundamental fact that education is best provided as a public service for the public good? Of course, it does policy discussion a disservice by painting markets in absolutist terms. A neoliberal conspiracy on the one hand, or a panacea for all ills on the other. And it's arguable whether the free market experiment has even properly got going given the OFS's full regulatory powers to promote competition don't kick in till August. So far, there's hardly been a flood of new providers and only two full cohorts of students have been through the system since £9,000 fees were first introduced. It's more important perhaps to ask what it was exactly that ministers wanted choice and competition to address. Ministers may talk the talk on letting the market decide, but it is doubtful that, in an age of low or no majorities, they would allow an established university to go to the wall. And for all the talk of lowering the bar for new providers, the odds remain stacked against challengers and disruptors. Steve Hunt is from the Centre for Global Higher Education. Well, I think one of the things we have to take into account is that there was a campaign during that time, led partly by Theresa May when she was at the Home Office, and subsequently pursued of removing tier four licenses, particularly in the case of um, uh, uh, private providers, not just of higher education. I think often they were further educational language schools. By tier four, I mean uh, that they were licensed to recruit um, and educate international students, that's students from outside the EU. Um, and I think there was a drive to remove those. So that might have <coughs> massively. Oh, <coughs> had an effect on the numbers that went out of business because when they were denied access to um, international students, their businesses were no longer viable. And I also think it may have also had the effect of other ones that still remained in operation to stop doing obvious higher education qualifications and perhaps concentrate on um, uh, short courses that don't really look like higher education courses because you could come in and study them on a a tourist visa. Uh, So I think... Whatever the market forces might have been, and there's always going to be some degree of churn, you know, loss and then replacement in any kind of business sector. I think it was further um, exacerbated by this, you know, non-market intrusion, if you like. So if we boil it down, perhaps all we're trying to do is explain, codify and formalise all this complexity in a way which makes more sense. The language of the market is one way to do it. And a future Labour government may take a different approach. They will all ultimately run up against the same issue. Over-optimism. The success and failure of reforms, market-led or not, is as much down to badly designed policy, implementation and oversight as anything else. Whether it's competitive tendering for bin collections, or outsourcing probation services, or running a rail network. The collapse of adult learner numbers in or the huge projected overspend on apprenticeships is down to poor policy design and an intrinsic flaw in markets. The bottom line is that politicians of all stripes can never fully understand how decisions will play out, and policy is based on assumptions about the behaviours of groups over whom they have no direct control. We forget that the debate about balancing costs between direct grants and loans is nothing new. The Anderson Report of 1960 rejected loans in favour of mandatory living and tuition grants 
for first-time undergraduates. The Robbins Report in 1963, however, left the door open for their introduction. It then took another 40 years to become part of a landscape. Today's arguments simply don't reflect that we've been talking about it for decades. It shows the critical importance of institutional memory in Whitehall. Political debate in the past shapes debate today. Policy blunders limit scope for change now. Policy successes creates the space for reform. But without a clear understanding of the past, governments risk simply reinventing the wheel or making the same mistakes. We see this in the modelling that was made around the current fee system. Here's Nick Hillman again. I think the lack of institutional memory has been perhaps the single biggest problem affecting higher education policy in recent times. Certainly, when I worked in Whitehall, it was the biggest frustration. Uh, you know, higher education had bounced around Whitehall from department to department. And, and even within the department that I worked, the business department that was in charge in those days of higher education policy, um, the civil servants, you know, if they wanted to be promoted, they had to move job every year or so. Uh, so they would move off higher education policy into something else. Um, there was a good amount of institutional memory in some bits of the department, like the office in Sheffield of, of the business department, and also in uh, Hefke. That's one of the reasons I regret the closure of Hefke is you lost some institutional memory. Um, so, so I think it's a really big problem, 2012. This may or may not be the case, but it does beg the question why, even today, ministers are still castigating universities for charging maximum fees and not competing on price, when it's a direct result of how the policy is designed. The same could be said for those ministers' other regular gripes, like the take-up of accelerated degrees, the use of unconditional offers, or graduate employment outcomes. It also highlights the risks of bouncing higher education around Whitehall. It left the old DFES in 2007, was in DS until 2009, and then BIS until 2015, before the ministerial role was split between DFE and Bayes. And now even the current university's minister is also moonlighting in the clean energy brief, thanks to the dearth of available and loyal talent in the ministerial ranks. There is inevitable attrition from policy teams with knowledge walking out the door, making it tough to get hold of expertise, evidence and knowledge from even the very recent past. Tom Sass is from the Institute for Government. Uh, there's an idea that civil servants are basically sort of interchangeable and it's a, a generalist administrative skill set and you can move between any different role and pick it up very quickly. You know, the idea of the kind of bright young person in the treasury who doesn't need to have uh, five or six years experience in an area to be able to do it competently. So there's definitely a cultural idea about actually being able to move around quickly and not needing specialist skills. Um, the, the bit around the career path and promotion, I think, has become uh, more important in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. What you've seen is a, a pay freeze and a pay cap uh, since 2010. And you've also seen an opening up of uh, the civil service internal market for jobs, which means that anyone can apply for any job at any time. Now, if you put those two things together, what you have is a situation where if you stay in your current post, it's almost impossible for a civil servant to get a promotion in their current post. But there are, particularly for civil servants in Whitehall, in London, where there are lots and lots of roles, there are almost always other roles you can apply to. 
So staying within an area is not a quick way to, to sort of continue to move upwards, particularly with the pay freeze, whereas moving rapidly between jobs is a much quicker way to sort of to, to climb up the ladder. So it's both cultural and a kind of practical workforce reason as well. So all of this requires ministers not to be blinkered about policy making, not to believe their own hype, that less is sometimes more, and to make more haste, less speed, particularly when their own hands are tied by not being able to access the advice to previous administrations. That's not the civil service being Sir Humphrey-ish. It's about applying common sense when running a modern government. Right now, DfE is working on a whole series of major post-18 reforms beyond universities. The rollout of T-levels, institutes of technology, new level 4 and 5 qualifications, phasing out funding for BTECs, the biggest apprenticeship reforms in decades, overhauling adult education, and the national retraining scheme. All of this would be highly ambitious, even at the best of times. It risks huge overreach in a hung parliament and a lame duck prime minister, with public finances still tight, with political capital, energy and capacity drained, and no buy-in from the opposition. So it's not good enough simply to understand the failures of individual schemes of the past, like, say, diplomas, train-to-gain, or individual learning accounts. It pays to be realistic, patient, and pragmatic. Education is just too important to keep getting wrong and going back to the start again. If you think about it, it's astonishing, after all this time, that we've still ended up with a university funding system where everyone feels like a loser. Government, taxpayers, students, and even universities. But then fees have always been politically toxic. At the height of her powers, Margaret Thatcher shied away from parental top-ups in the 80s. And the biggest backbench rebellion for Tony Blair was on £3,000 fees. And these were governments which held huge majorities. So it's unlikely to think a Conservative leader these days, holding together his or her party on a shoestring, would want to go anywhere near fees. Could this be the day Tony Blair's project was defeated? The day his party finally said, enough is enough. This man soon put an end to that hope. One-time rebel leader, close friend of Gordon Brown, new convert to the government's cause. But there have been a whole range of things that have been conceded to us, and the total of that is sufficient for me, and I'm speaking only for myself, to support the government in the lobbies tonight. Concessions? What concessions? A review and a promise of maybe some more money later. So a victory, not a climb down. I'm not talking about victory and defeat. I have a lot of sympathy with the people that can't uh, stomach the proposals because of the move towards marketisation. I think we have sufficient safeguards in place, but that won't be everybody's judgement. Tony Blair was on the brink today. One brown, maybe two browns, have saved his bacon. Major parties in England have flip-flopped on fees constantly over the years. The Deering and Brown reports were commissioned to neutralise fees as an election issue in 97 and 2010, kicking difficult decisions from one parliament to another. Labour is now committed to free higher education, despite introducing fees in the first place and flirting with a graduate tax. The Tories opposed them in 98 and 2004, and even fought the 2005 election on a pledge to scrap 
the tax on learning. Conservative leader Michael Howard, here on a visit to his native Wales, sees Labour's divisions as presenting the Tories with a chance to attack the government. Mr Howard believes more technical vocational courses are needed rather than university places, but in any case, higher tuition fees are not the way to go. Both Tony Blair and I fought the last general election on a clear manifesto promise not to introduce stop-up fees. The difference between us is that I'm keeping my promise, he's breaking his. You'd hope that Philip Auger's panel unpicks the reasons that we've come to this point, but it's clear that in part it is down to the disastrous decision to operate the system as loans, fees and debt. It put the language of the -the behind-the-scenes accounting model at the forefront of selling the policy. The fee is a cost unit to make the government's books stack up. The loan bears little relation to commercial loans, and debt is a tax in all but name. No one lies awake at night worrying about the income tax they'll be paying in 30 years. This was all compounded by the context of austerity. It meant the trebling of fees was not sold as addressing decades of underinvestment, protecting education, and pumping new, long-term funding in. It was positioned as the urgent need to cut public spending, and that students could no longer rely on the state. Ministers claimed the economy crashed because the UK ran up huge debts, but then also claimed that it was fair and equitable for graduates to get a loan statement telling them they owe £50,000. We do believe it is essential that if the graduate contribution is to rise, it should be linked to graduates' ability to pay. On average, graduates earn comfortably more than £100,000 over their lifetimes compared with non-graduates. But not, not all graduates benefit in this way. Some choose socially useful but modestly paid or unpaid work, which may include time spent bringing up a family. And at present, the graduate contribu- contribution acts too much like a poll tax. Badly understood policy is just bad policy. The responsibility is with ministers who signed off on a policy which worked on paper, but has ended up toxic on the doorstep. The comparison with the poll tax is telling. Anthony King and Ivor Crewe's brilliant book, The Blunders of Our Governments, sets out how in its very conception, very clever politicians and officials contrived to produce one of the worst and stupidest pieces of legislation in modern British history. They castigate the Cabinet and Parliament's collective failure to halt in good time a project that in its speed and potential for destruction bore a striking resemblance to a runaway train. Policy needs common sense, and in the case of the poll tax, to listen to that wise civil servant who told his superiors to try collecting that in Brixton. So it's revealing that the post-18 review's terms of reference are explicit about finance needing to be better communicated, and reassuring perhaps that Ivor Crewe himself is on the expert panel. It recognises that tuition fees have but It recognises that tuition fees have become permanently weaponised, and it indicates perhaps ministers have run out of steam in defending their own policy. They might pay lip service to protecting the basic principles, but no longer have the energy or words to defend the system. Theresa May originally positioned her own review as repairing broken university markets, alongside housing and energy, deliberately reached out to parents and grandparents worried about their children's debts. It meant May ended up fighting a kind of guerrilla war against her own higher education policy at the last election. No wonder Jeremy Corbyn's pledge to abolish fees, whatever the enormous drawbacks, is deceptively simple. In theory, on the day we're recording this, the Orga Review is imminent. And it's possible, perhaps even likely, that its conclusions and recommendations will be buried. A long-forgotten review commissioned by a Prime Minister 
unpopular in her own party and the wider country. Whatever the ideas inside it, they will have their enemies. The sector will do what it does so often when it feels attacked. Get defensive, overcomplicate, and reel off all the reasons why change can't be delivered. Most of us will agree with much of the analysis. We'll see the flaws and the pitfalls and the unintended consequences if an already weak government dares to act. But perhaps this time we need to do something else too. Universities are home to our sharpest minds and our brightest discoveries. In the decade to come, our skills needs will change radically. Demand for higher education will grow rapidly and whatever the Brexit outcome, our economy will need to be rebuilt. To address all of that, we need ideas that solve the legitimate problems that people and politicians identify and that command popular support. Philip Auger's terms of reference include all of the goals we've seen before. A joined-up post-18 education sector, access for all and delivering the skills our country needs. Maybe the expert panel will have the ideas and a forthcoming government, the drive to sell those ideas to achieve real change. But if not, isn't it the sector's turn to try and escape the policy trap? Our wonky 360 report demonstrated the appetite in the sector to take back the policy debate, to move away from the aggression and immaturity of government policy to an inclusive, mature conversation that brings in the expertise and knowledge of the people working and studying across higher education. As one of our respondents told us, we cannot be passive recipients for other people's ideological views or ideas of HE. We need to work together to discuss, develop and effectively communicate more nuanced policy rooted in the reality of our student bodies, staff experiences and the day-to-day context of our organisations and the communities they are part of. Only then will we escape the education policy trap. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.